You're listening to Big Girl Money. I am a cheerleader. I'm the head of the USA women's soccer team cheer squad. I like that. I'm not actually, but if I could be, I would take that job. That's what you would do. Oh, yeah. You'd be a ball girl. Yes. I like it. Are you happy that the women won the World Cup? It was so cool. I know. It was awesome. It was so awesome. And I wouldn't have ever watched, I don't think, like I did if it wasn't for you getting me all. Yeah, the soccer game was awesome. I did have a tiny feeling that you have like... The same feeling you had the day after Christmas where you're like, oh, there's nothing. Now else. I have to wait a whole year for the next one. I felt that way a little yeah. bit after, but mostly I was just so happy. Was yeah, everything I thought I they go every for. four years. Yeah, you they do. Yep. But at least you get to see them play in big, big tournaments. Yeah. Well, right? on the Summer Olympics is oh, okay. next summer. Okay, perfect. So that's see, I'm learning year. something all the time from you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how useful it is, but you are learning it. That's true. And and Ronnie's got some big news. She got two offers to play against each other. <laughs> That's not the whole point of it, but it definitely <laughs> is the advantage of it. Yes, I have two job offers right now. Yes. I went from zero to two. I know. So we she is rocking it today, people. <laughs> Talk about big girl money. Ronnie is getting hers. <laughs> <laughs> Wendy coached me through the whole thing. I call Wendy. I go, what do I say now? Wait, wait. What do I say now? Uh, does this sound okay? And the thing is, when you when you write it down and you do your own emails, they sound great. I know. The last email I sent. It was on fire. That got me the extra little signing bonus. I didn't, on... I didn't need your help for See? I almost sent it to you first. And I was like, you know what? I, can I feel do like this. in my heart, this is Wendy approved. And I just sent it off. Listen to you. I'm so proud of you. Thanks. Because you are so funny. You sent that note. What? yesterday day four Um, i need some mentoring oh yeah (laughs) that's how i felt like isn't that what i do with you every day (laughs) i I mean don't we kind of lay it on thick today okay okay (laughs) gotta put on my mentor hat i'm ready now yes i like it Uh, so i'm so proud it was so stressful to do yeah but i didn't negotiate my first job or the second one yeah. So it was like, okay, this is the time. The time is now. Let's do it. Wow. And it totally went well. Like you have these irrational thoughts in your head that people are going to be mad that you're negotiating. But that was not the case at all. No. They were so nice about it. And kind. And if they're not nice, then you don't really want to work there. Exactly. You're so smart. <laughs> How old are you? 24. I don't believe it. You seem a lot smarter. <laughs> but I don't look older, right? No. Young, young, young. <laughs> Young, 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 young. That's right. Oh, and we had the 4th of July. Yes. I'm just, it was such a great. I'm just feeling great. Everything's just going good. I know. I love this. So we're so tickled about our episode today. Yes. Right? So on today's episode, we're going to do a big girl take. And I'm excited to talk about this because I think that we're going to have some interesting opinions that might not be the same about this. But our big girl take is on crying in the workplace. Crying at work. Yes. And if you haven't been there, you will be. Hate yes. to break it to you. 
Yes. And it's funny because there's a lot of the reason this came up for me is I saw an article on it. And then when you were playing around with this topic, you found a lot of information too. There's a lot of people talking about this. Oh yeah. So we'll get into that. And then we have a fabulous interview with the executive director of Women's Wilderness, Sarah Murray. And then we have always a big girl spotlight at the end because we cannot not talk about amazing women out there making a difference in the world we just can't not talk about it we just can't not (laughs) but double negative all right let's get into it okay time for the big girl take so bgt today's topic is crying at work crying at work so ronnie you found some great information. Yes, I did. Um, I'd love for you to kick it off with that. All right, let me kick it off. My pages are all out of order. That's why I put numbers at the top. I know, you're right. I lost one. Oh, no, I found it. I found it. Okay. <laughs> so, um, according to Anne Creamer, who's the author of It's Always Personal, Navigating Emotion in the Workplace, 41% of women say they've cried in the workplace compared to 9% of men. She says, in spite of the cathartic psychological benefits, women who cry at work feel rotten afterwards, as if they've failed a feminism test. I totally agree with that. (laughs) I know. They feel worse after crying at work, while men usually feel better. Wow. So I found this really cool article where they asked a bunch of um, executive women in leadership what they thought about crying at work. Whoa. So... Here, this is Vanessa Lauder, founder and CEO of Akoya Power. She said, when I worked in finance, especially on Wall Street, I never wanted to be that woman, in quotes, you know, the one who cries during her review. I would clench my fists under the table and take a deep breath, trying to avoid any emotional reactions. And yet, sometimes it would happen anyway. I remember one time when I was really upset and tried to walk out of my manager's office so he wouldn't see me cry, but he called me back in and kept prodding me until I really broke down. (laughs) Wow. I was so embarrassed and I was concerned that it diminished my power or caused him to view me as some irrational emotional mess. If you feel safe, I think it can be very powerful to cry and let people see how you really feel. And when you're home alone that night, spend some time really really allowing yourself to feel your feelings and see what's underneath all that emotion. It's not your job to make sure everyone around you feels comfortable all the time. It's your job to take care of you. I love that. I know. I thought that one was powerful. Yeah. And here's one I didn't like so much. Okay. But can I say one thing about the manager? Yeah. Not emotionally intelligent. I know. To keep... I mean, to keep prodding. When she's trying to leave. When you know she's about to lose it. Right? Right. So, to be honest... Like, let her escape. You kind of go into an empty well there. Yes. He's he's not going to help and support you. All right. This is Mika Brzezinski, the Morning Joe gal. Mm Mm-hmm. She said, every time I've cried at work, I've regretted it. That doesn't mean it hasn't happened. In fact, it's happened at the most inopportune moments. But as I get older, I've realized it's simply not worth it. I cried when I was fired from CBS right there in front of the president of CBS News. It was a mixture of shock and deep sadness because I loved working there so much. And I was also full of feelings about disappointing my family, especially my two young girls. But there was no place for those tears in that moment. If anything, when you cry, you give away power. When you're in control of your emotions, you're communicating that you are in control. Being in control of your emotions gives you much more power at work, much more control over any situation, and much more dignity. I suggest never, ever, ever crying at work. Well, that's pretty extreme. Isn't that? I mean, it's a little uh, harsh, man. Yeah. I think. 
Coming from someone who's sensitive and cries a lot, it's yeah, it's kind of hard. Like when you get fired out of the blue, oh, I yeah. feel like it's understandable to cry. Oh yeah. Or Mika says, "Suck it up, sister." Yeah. Well, and I, I don't agree with that. If you've ever watched her, no, I never watched yeah. her. She has. She has her husband is on the show with her as a co-host. Oh. And they're an interesting pair, but huh. we won't get into that. <laughs> okay. So according to the New York Times study from early 2019. And an article by Tim Herrera, just under half of employees have cried at work at some point. And it was also found that about 75% of CFOs surveyed thought crying every so often is totally normal. Whoa. So that's kind of good to know. And a CFO is all about the money. They're usually pretty analytical. Right. Exactly. So for them to think this way. Yeah. I thought that was good. That's good. And then they would disagree with Mika. So what do you think about this? Well, the biggest thing that bothers me about what we've left out yeah up till now uh-huh. is that we didn't talk about what the manager should do oh and you so, probably have a lot of experience with that so if you're a guy and even a, a woman mm-hmm. so a man or a woman and someone cries what's the best way to actually respond right right because that's almost more important i like that we covered this mm-hmm. but for me it has always been, and, and men ask me this all the time. They say, I feel uncomfortable when a woman's crying. And it's like, uh, so do I when a woman's <laughs> crying, right? I mean, you feel bad. Right. That they're frustrated or they and most of the time women don't cry because they're, they're sad, right? They're, they're usually they're frustration upset. tears. It's usually anxiety, frustration. They're yeah. just ticked. Right. Right. I and agree. so. Um, what should a man do in that case? Because it's not like, oh, here, here, you know, you're crying because you lost your parent, right? That's a whole different thing. This is, they really wanted something to happen at work. They don't feel listened to and they kind of spill over. Lose it for a second. They lose it, right? And that's how it comes out is crying. Mm -hmm. So most of the time I tell men or women to say, I can, it's almost the same thing. I can really tell you're passionate about this. And uh, let me know what I could do so that you could feel better heard. Mm-hmm. Or how can I help support you in this? Right. Uh, would it be better if we um, talked about this later? Would it help to have a break? Mm-hmm. Or if anything, give the damn person a tissue. Have you ever been crying and... <laughs> I mean, you're just slobbing and you're using your, your, your shirt sleeve. You do one of these. And, and the person on the other side is not jumping up, getting your damn tissue. They're just letting you slobber all over yourself. I mean, seriously, have just some some common decency. Right. Have some tissues in your room if you're a manager. (laughs) That's so funny. And, you know, give it to the person. Yeah. Right. And say, it's fine. We, I can see that you're. You're really committed to this. I mean, to say those kinds of things, I think is the best thing. Yeah, I agree. I think my best experience with crying at work, I'll say my best experience and my worst experience. Okay. (laughs) My best experience crying at work is when I was working at Pizzeria Locale when Mm -hmm. I was serving. My manager there, who was so awesome, her name's Jody. Shout out to Jody. She, um, like she was so good at tailoring how she managed people based on who they were mm-hmm. and treating people different. Mm-hmm. And she just knew about me that if I had some tears in my eyes during service, that she should just 
not talk to me about it because I just need two seconds and I'll get over it. And get and your we, stuff back together. Yeah, and we can move on. And then at the end of the night, she'll be like, do you want to talk about why you are upset earlier? And I'll yeah. either say, no, I'm over it now. Yeah, or- I'm over it now. Or yeah, I want to talk. Like, I never really want to talk about things once I start tearing up. Because mm-hmm. as soon as Don't I start it talking about it, it's yeah. Just- but I think some people do. So I think it's good when managers ask, do you want to talk about this later or should we talk about it now? Because I know some of my friends who get emotional and they just, they can pull themselves together enough to talk about it now and they just want to talk about it while it's on their mind. Right. Whereas me, I'm no. like, I need to sleep on this so I'm not freaking out and we can talk right. about it. And I time. need a minute. Right. I need 60 seconds. Yeah, exactly. I cannot talk about it. Sometimes you tear up over something just kind of stupid and you or you didn't pull even it together you didn't even know you were that close right that's did, what kills exactly. me right is what i what i've tried to develop over time and i've and i suggest other women who talk about this to me do too is to start recognizing the earlier physical symptoms that you're gonna <laughs> lose your shit physical symptoms like your gut starts to feel kind of funny yeah yeah or you start to tense up, like right. in your arms, or you know, you just or I you're might, twitching, like yeah. This, are you starting this, to twitch? This, yeah. this. <laughs> <laughs> if so you could true. only see Ronnie do the twitch, <laughs> but that bun's bouncing back. And, and forth. so, what's the worst? You said that was the best. Oh, the worst was probably similar to one of the stories that I read. So basically, I was with me, my manager, and then my manager's boss, and we okay. were in a meeting. And the boss said something like he had, had said shit during the meeting and was like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry about my language, Ronnie. Sometimes I can get, you know, a little heated in the moment. And I was kind of put off by that because I was the only woman in the room and he said it to me, but nobody yeah, else. And right. I'm like, like, what about Bill? Is he upset? <laughs> I'm like, I, and so I'm like, why did you just assume that I'm going to be more sensitive right. to that? So he left and then it was just me and my manager and I said to my manager I thought that that was like kind of weird and I didn't really like it that he called me out yeah it was just kind of I don't know just something I wanted to bring to your attention and he was not on my side at all he's like he's just trying to be a nice guy it's his why are you being so sensitive yeah it's his background that's just kind of the way he is because he's like older guy kind of like like he would make me pick where we would go to lunch oh yeah because i was the only girl there and yeah. it's like i don't want to pick where we go to yeah or like do i always have to walk out the door first when i'm like behind six people yeah you know just yeah. kind of weird stuff like that yeah and i started to get emotional about it and i was just kind of like never mind and then he's like no what and i'm like never mind and kind of forced me to talk about it. it yeah so then i kept talking about it so then i got emotional and then he was like, it's okay. You know, women are a lot more emotive than men. And I was like, just stop talking to me. It's just stop digging your own grave, you dumbass. <laughs> I know. That's what you want to say. I know. So that was a bad experience. Aww. But it's kind of the thing where you where I, you could tell you were about to cry. So you're yes. trying to get out of it. Yeah. But the damn person won't leave you oh, alone. Yeah. So, so what do you do in that situation? So it's so weird that this topic came up because, you know, I've done speaking now for what? four years. Yeah. And I've, I mean, I did speaking before when I was in corporate, but now I speak to women audiences a lot, Mm -hmm. right. And to mixed audiences and almost every single talk, a woman would stand up and ask me this question. Really? What about crying? 
at work. Wow. Or I would ask, what do you like about working with women? And what don't you like? And people would always say crying. That they didn't like I that? I hate when I cry at work. That's what they would say. <laughs> You'd say, well, I was asking about when other, you know, what do you not like about working with other women? Right. And they said, no, no, I just hate crying at work. Oh and they always bring that up. That's so interesting. So I started kind of, you know, treating it like a little social scientist experiment and started trying to figure out, is there a physical reason women cry and before men do? Okay. And I found that there is. What is it? So women's tear ducts, this is crazy. <laughs> really? Are actually shaped like a wide saucer, okay. a wide bowl that's very, not very deep. Okay. Whereas a man's tear ducts are like a cup. They're, they're deeper. <laughs> okay. Is this crazy? This is crazy. It's so cool though. It is cool. So that what happens is, is when men's eyes welled up, they have time for it to soak back in because of the shape of it. Oh. It's deep. Whereas women, when we weld up, it's so shallow that it spills they just over. come on out. Wow. So it that's so me, interesting. So it actually made me feel better. So I started when I was in mixed audiences telling men this. Oh. It's that physically women cry sooner than men do. That's so interesting. And you should have seen the men. They were like, oh, so they're not just... More, as your boss said, emotive. Yeah. Is that what he said? Yeah. They're not more emotional. They're not, you know, um, they need thicker skin. They just physically are are built to cry sooner than men do. Right. And it just made such a big difference. That is so interesting. I thought so too. Yeah. And it also makes me think of our conversation with Carl about oh, just yeah. how... I just think that when women are growing up, it's more acceptable to yes. get upset and express your emotions. Yes. And men sort of get this upbringing of like, yes. always look strong, suck it up. Yes. Don't look weak. Yes. Carl is this great guest we, we're going to come out with in a couple weeks. Mm -hmm. And he's um, he is so in tune around this um, men being pressured to be men mm -hmm. and being um, actually... Uh, us as parents build that in in mm -hmm. the world that men need to be stronger tougher don't cry that cold, whole right thing. yeah yeah so, so stay tuned for that yes exactly <laughs> that is so interesting though yes but exactly. i do i do think overall i would say if you cry at work one time two times a year and it's not totally. in front of a ton of people yeah and it just shows that you care and i think that most people aren't gonna judge you or look at you differently yeah. if you get a little frustrated or upset about something that you care about. I agree. And how are you like employers want employees that are passionate about what they're working on. That's right. And you can't be passionate without having of some frustration too. Well, and I've learned over 35 years in business. So I had this experience once where I had to, to talk to the whole department you know, 125 people about layoffs. Oh, yeah. And it was tough. Mm -hmm. And I knew this was people's jobs. And so I had to talk about why we were doing it January 1st mm -hmm. versus pushing it out. And I had to talk about the fact that if we waited another quarter, it meant we had to do 30% more people oh, by waiting that right. long. And how this was a really tough decision because it was right after Christmas. And, um, and I... 
I cried in front of people. And I can't tell you how many folks came up to me afterwards and said, you're the first director I've ever seen cry at Avaya. Or, oh my God. Or any big telecom company. And how much it meant to them that I cared about the situation. Aww. So I think that actually crying can help you to reach people. And right. Do, I mean, don't use it as uh, people don't use this for evil, okay? <laughs> don't turn on the crying to get out of the ticket or to get your people to love you more. Let's not do that. <laughs> but I do believe in, I've seen it actually help me. So Yeah, I agree. Totally agree. And I think, Ronnie, you, you made a great point. Into- Walk away and figure out why did you get upset at that point? Because there's something underlying. Right, right. Right? It's either you, your boss, you're not feeling heard. Right. Or he's never there for you. Right. Or she's never um, really stood up for you. Right. It's something a little deeper. Yes. So. And if you're crying more than a couple times a year, you need a new job. That doesn't sound like a good fit. (laughs) Totally agree. (laughs) Well, now that we've hashed that out, let's uh, get to our guest. All right. Sarah Murray. Let's see. Where did I put this? Here it is. Okay, so Sarah Murray, Executive Director of Women's Wilderness. The Women's Wilderness mission is to cultivate courage, confidence, connection, and environmental stewardship among girls, women, and the LGBTQ2 plus community through year-round outdoor immersions across the West. And you found, uh, you saw these folks at a... Yes, I saw their yeah. No Man's Land Film Festival. Yes, yes. I went because my friend Casey... What helped organize the event through the outdoor store that she works at. Very so we cool. all went to support her and they put on this huge film festival highlighting all these awesome women in the outdoors that are kind of defying stereotypes. So and I it love awesome. it. And Sarah is their executive director, right? Yes. Tell us a little bit about Sarah. She spent her career ensuring gender equity in sports and play. Before this role, she was the executive director of Women Win Foundation, a U.S.-based nonprofit working primarily in the Global South. She's a master trainer with the THNK School of Innovation and provides consultancy to influential organizations globally to employ systems thinking, human-centered design, gender analysis, and play-based methodologies to address the most pressing social issues of our time. Wow, that's huge. She's just got a lot going on. And she was such a terrific guest, so let's jump yes, right in. She's so calming. When she walked in, Wendy and I were just like, oh. <sighs> I agree. <laughs> and Sarah, you're the, the executive director. That's true, I am. Oh, wow. <laughs> she seems so proud and so confident about that. <laughs> And it's a new role for you, right? Yeah, it is. You're catching me on the second week of the job. Yay. Wow. Congratulations, Sarah, on our new job. So this is a big test. No, it's not a test because <laughs> you've had a pretty interesting background. Thanks. Yeah, it definitely aligns with the work that I'm doing. I've spent the better part of my 25-year career working on gender equity and sport, play, outdoor activities, basically trying to get women and girls access to different sports and to realize the benefits that come through participating in those sports and activities. Awesome. That's amazing. How'd you get into that field? Well, I 
grew up in a household that was dominated by a very strong female, a single mom, and um, sport. We moved around quite a bit in my growing up, and sport and specifically soccer was always the way that I could make friends and get connected socially, and we lived in Vermont for the most part, and it was a very progressive state, so I had a progressive household and a progressive state, and then I went to college in Ohio, Uh in the middle of the country, Mm. and things were a little different in Ohio. Um, I played intercollegiate soccer and lacrosse and in was just completely struck by the gender discrimination that was happening in the athletic departments there oh, no. and the Title IX violations. And so I was studying politics and women's studies at the time, and I decided to do my honors thesis on uh, Title IX and Title IX compliance at my university, the Ohio Wesleyan University. And, uh, yeah, ended up giving a report at the end of two years to the provost that talked about all the violations and decided that that was the work that I wanted to do with my life. And so ever since, I've been working on finding ways to make this world a more just and equitable place using sport and play as my tool. Love it. Wow. And how did you find this job? Uh, well, I was previously working for 10 years at Women Win, which works on international girls and women's rights, um, using sport and play-based strategies, and played sports with girls in about 65 countries and had a wonderful, wonderful time. But I was traveling about 60% of the time and or 70 sometimes. And my wife and I had a daughter six months ago, Tallulah, and I just Aww. decided that that was no longer feasible for me to be... Um, you know, traveling around. And it was really shortly after she was born, I was in a meeting in Pakistan and I looked down at my phone at the monitor and I was watching her sleep on the monitor of my phone. And I almost fell over in my chair having this realization of how wrong this was, that here I am, you know, doing this work of social inclusion and connectivity and the love of girls and women. And I'm half a world away from my daughter. Wow. Um, so very serendipitously, right about at the same time, the executive director position at Women's Wilderness opened up. A friend passed it on and I just decided it's a little bit more localized or regionalized work than I had previously done, but it very much aligned with my passion and purpose, and I decided to go for it. Man, Here perfect. I am. And Tallulah is a fabulous name. Yeah, it she is. She is a fabulous kid. She Aww. is. How old is she now? Six months. Oh. How did you come up with that name? Tallulah, well, you know, we just kind of liked it, but also the first time that uh, my wife felt her inside of her, she was in the water. And Um, so we kind of had this idea of maybe having some type of name that connected to the water. And Tallulah um, has a kind of double origin, both from Gaelic roots and Native American roots, and in both instances has um, connotation to strength of water. Oh, what a good answer. That's I mean, that's a great reason because <laughs> I like how you started with, well, we kind of liked it. And here's the super poetic, beautiful reason. <laughs> no. Do you have a super po- poetic, beautiful reason for Veronica? Yeah. I'm named after my grandpa, Ronnie. <gasps> you didn't know that? No. Yeah. Well, my mom wanted me to have a biblical name. So she named me Veronica, but my dad wanted me to be named after his grandpa or after his dad, Ronnie. Yeah. So they named me Veronica, but they've always called me Ronnie. That is so cool. It's not quite as, you know. Poetic, but (laughs) but it still is nice. I mean, it's a great story. Uh How did you get Wendy? Well, I'm a twin, and my (laughs) my brother is named after my dad, Franklin Woodrow Hall. So he's Woody because my dad was Frank, and so my mom wanted it to be kind of cute. So Woody Wendy, (laughs) and so if he was going to be a girl, he would be Mindy Wendy. 
Oh, God. But he was a boy, so it's Woody Wendy. Yeah. That's so cute. Isn't that funny? Yeah. I wish you guys were triplets and it could have been Woody, Wendy, and Tallulah. Tallulah. <laughs> I love that. I that would it. have been a good one. That's a good one. So the way I first found out about Women's Wilderness was at this really awesome film festival called No Man's Land, which showed a bunch of different women doing all sorts of outdoor activities, kind of seizing the day. And it was really eye-opening to me because I kind of realized all the outdoor activity. I'm not super outdoorsy, but when I think of outdoorsy things, I really only think about men doing them. Mm. Is that part of the mission of Women's Wilderness? Is to like normalize women doing those sorts of activities? Yeah, it definitely is. Okay. Uh, we talk a lot about the benefits that come through that experience as well, but in order mm-hmm. to experience the benefits of what it feels like to summit a peak or do your first trad climb or something like that, you have to get access and you have to feel like that's even available to you. Right. And so inherently doing that work of just getting girls and women to – try and have a positive first experience in the outdoors as part of what we do. Our mission is formally to cultivate the courage, confidence, and connectedness of girls, women, and LGBTQ folks through outdoor immersions, and primarily we do that in the American West. Okay, wow. wow. And I love your tagline, making a difference one girl at a time. Yeah. So how did that come about? What's the background with the company? How did somebody get this idea? Yeah, the origin story is actually a really beautiful one. Laura Tyson is the founder of the organization. And in 98, she was a wilderness therapist and had been doing some work at Naropa and Naropa University. Mm -hmm. And she was really looking at some of the outdoor education and therapy programs that were out there, like Outward Bound and Knowles and, you know, all due respect to the work that they do. But those were models that were really developed for men and post-war men to develop a male style of leadership and specifically military leadership. And, you know, when it came to her background and thinking about what it is that she saw girls and women needing from the outdoors and also what they could offer to the outdoors and to the environment and natural places, it was completely different. It was a real paradigm shift. And so she became clear immediately that something needed to exist that was looking at the development and leadership of girls and women and social inclusion and strength and confidence and so forth and mental health and physical health, but that it was going to be very much um, created and designed for women by women. Wow. What an edgy thing to do at that time. Yeah. Way before Me Too and all of this. Exactly. And really, I mean, the outdoor industry now, we see a lot of marketing towards women and we see a lot of, you know, not actually still a lot of girls or a lot of women in leadership positions at the board levels of companies and so forth. But at that time, it was even more male and it was even more white. And there were, you know, if you were climbing, you were probably climbing with your boyfriend and, Mm -hmm. you know, at elite levels of sport participation and outdoor industry across. And I was actually a snowboard instructor for seven years and write about at the same time. And I was the first female snowboard instructor in the country and knew that, you know, the misogyny that we were experiencing (laughs) in the snowboard and snow sports industry um, was often, um, yeah, it was just, there was no female option. Wow. The first female snowboard instructor in the industry. That's wow. a nice look. That's in the country. Wait, that's it in the country? Yeah. And uh, that's its own podcast. <laughs> I mean, seriously, because you probably hit some road bumps. Sexism, some, some snowboard bumps. Yeah. <laughs> that was good. Some moguls. <laughs> along you probably the way. hit some moguls along that way. <laughs> was that kind of a bumpy ride for you? Yeah. I mean, 
you know, I used to have a kind of pride, an outward pride, that people thought I was a boy because even though I had a ponytail, it would be, you know, in, under a hat and in my jacket. And so there was, you know, the, the unveiling moment where I would take off my hat and people would realize I was a girl. Or And at that time, I was actually a girl. I started when I was about 16 years old um, in Killington Mountain in Vermont. Uh, but really deep inside, it was very, it was very much a try to keep up with the boys and mm-hmm, keep up with yeah. the men kind of situation. And um, as much as the novelty of being the only female was kind of an ego boost in some ways, it yeah. was also very lonely. Um, and, Isolating. you know, having role models at that time, it was, you know, snowboarding was just burgeoning and there were, it, you know, there were some opportunities for role models and social connectivity, but few. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was mostly teaching lessons to men. Very few women were even, this was like in the early 90s. Um, very few women were snowboarding at all. And so it was like a young female instructor teaching, you know, middle-aged men. And uh, <laughs> it was fun. I, I really, I liked it and I felt like it was a great opportunity, but it was not always easy at all. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that's the case almost always, right? Because... I'll never forget the when I got to be a manager of a group and at uh, Lucent and a guy was in my I was 35 and there was a guy in my group that had been working at Lucent for 40 years. So he had been working longer I 5 years longer than I'd been alive. <laughs> and it was but he was so great. But then there were other people who were like you're not telling me what to do. I've been working longer than you've been alive, right? Mm-hmm. And so it was all, how do you respond to that? But I took a lot of pride. I played sports growing up and was very competitive because my brother played sports and and always wanted to kind of beat him. And I think it kind of defines who you are. Like you have this bring it kind of attitude that you take into careers and and through your life. Would you see that? Yeah, and that's exactly what we're trying to kind of distill and replicate. I love is that. Is that idea that there is a transferable experience when you break into predominantly male domains or gender nonconforming spaces, whether that's being a policewoman or being a kite surfer or whatever the case may be, that actually that experience can first of all, pave the way for other girls and women to do that same thing in that space, but uh, maybe more importantly in your own life, become part of your how you are as an employee, how you are as a partner, how you are as a mother, mm-hmm. and that's incredibly important. That's great. Now, what does, do people ever say to you, but what about the boys? Why isn't this organization helping boys? Oh, in every job I've ever had, always in this field, yeah. And I love that you asked that question. It made me smile when I when I saw that. Um, so, what about the boys? Yeah, I mean, I if you look at sport participation numbers in this country or around the world, which is even more stark, mm-hmm. uh, boys don't need the same encouragement that girls need to play because we live in the social construct where, especially at adolescence, physicality is something that is expected of boys and men. Actually, they need the opposite. They need permission to not do those things. Yeah. Um, whereas girls, because of our gender stereotyping and gender roles, they're especially in you know different cultures 
cultural context, but there is a discouragement from getting muscles or being too masculine or being less sexy because, you know, you do this, that, and the other thing. And, and so we create space for girls and for women because there is a social construct, the whole world we live in, that basically creates those opportunities for boys. Wow. So there's the answer to your question, Wendy. I know. <laughs> and and I love this because I've hit it my whole life, like a take, a, take your daughters to work day. Well, what about the sons? You know, or, um, okay, we have a women of AT&T organization, a club. Well, what about the men of AT&T? And I always got that question. And it was like, uh, you have a men of AT&T. It's called your executive leadership team. <laughs> It's exactly. all men. It's right? the board. Yeah. It's the it's, board. Or it's yep. your board of AT&T. <laughs> Next time you, someone asks me, I'm just going to whip out this episode of the podcast and play yeah. what she said. Like, there, here you go. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, what do you think is so special about doing outdoor activities with other women? Because I haven't been super outdoorsy until kind of recently because my boyfriend and the group of friends I am loves all that stuff. So they bring me camping and doing all this kind of stuff. And I usually kind of throw a fit about it but once I'm there it ends up being great but what I've really noticed is it's extra great when all the girls come and we get to just hang out us girls or do a hike just us girls versus when I'm the only girl there with a bunch of boys then it's just not that much fun Mm. I can't I don't know if I can put my finger on why it's so special to be there with other women yeah, I mean, I think there's probably lots of factors and without, you know, pigeonholing all girls and women or mm-hmm. saying that, you know, that there's an absolute line. I recognize that there's a lot of diversity within this experience of womanhood or girlhood. That being said, I think some of the trends that I hear in doing this is one is it creates real safe space um, for mm-hmm. experimentation, non-competitive space, non-judgmental space mm-hmm. um, that you know, often when groups of men get together, I think there's a lot more um, competition bro factor. And when groups of women to get, get together, there's a lot more support and encouragement, um, which makes this really, yeah, it would be interesting if, you know, girls around the world and women around the world, what, what kind of world would we live in? <laughs> but yeah, when I see, like, for instance, a group of women go out kayaking together, um, if it's someone's first time and if someone's been doing it for 20 years, there's probably just still a lot of camaraderie and support. So I would say safety to experiment and try new things, mm-hmm. um, camaraderie and support and solidarity are part of that. Yeah, and that makes And not being afraid to, like, slow the boys down. I think that's my kind of problem. Oh, yeah. Like yeah. I'm not going to be able to keep up and then they're going to, then it's just going to make me feel bad and all this, you know. Right. And that pressure. Yeah. So my daughter, when she graduated high school, she's 20 now, a couple years ago, I said, we're not going to get a gift. We're going to have an experience and instead, and you can, we can go anywhere you want. And she picked Patagonia, a 51 mile uh, trekking where you stay in a place every night and you trek to a refugio yeah and um i went just say yes wendy (laughs) and even though that kind of wasn't my thing i'm more the weston or the kind of a person (laughs) and so we had to carry everything on our back and it was a small group because it was uh, uh they had a guide and it was one of the coolest things i've ever done with her and it was just as many women it's actually more women than men on the trip, even though the man was, was a male guide, but it was one of the neatest experiences, not just from the place, but 
doing it because I mean, I was the oldest, the um, next oldest was 30. It was two years ago. So I was 53 and I was worried. Maddie was the youngest at, at 18. And so here, here she is the youngest and I'm the oldest and I'm going, can I, can I hang with these people? Right. And I did. I was so proud of myself, but it was, it felt so powerful to do it and to feel strong and to, to feel like you were, you were doing this thing that most people said, oh, I don't know if I could do that, right? Yeah, kind of breaking, pioneering in new ways yeah. for yourself and whatever that yes. means in your world or more broadly. Yeah, yeah I think an another piece that, that comes up for me in this conversation is around self-sufficiency. And I think we are you know, socialized from a very young age to have, to be dependent on men specifically mm. uh, in our lives. And I think when you go out into the wild by yourself as an adolescent girl with only girls or, um, you know, you, you do these kind of things that kind of laugh in the face of that dependency because you you see your own strength and you experience um, your own self-sufficiency. And I think that that is an incredibly important lesson, especially for adolescent girls. Yeah. Yes, I agree. I, it's I, a lesson for me in my 20s. Well, now I'll never forget my oldest, my son, something broke and um, his dad was at work, um, not home yet. And I just happened to get home first. And he said, oh, we'll wait till dad gets home. And I said, oh, no, we won't. <laughs> we will fix this bitch ourselves. <laughs> and he kind of looked at me like, moms can fix things? And I went, oh, yeah, moms can do anything dads can do. And he said, can dads do anything moms do? I said, Mostly, most, <laughs> most of the time. <laughs> I mean, there's some things we probably do better, but I think that's just because we like things. And we had this long gender intelligence conversation with a, you know, seven-year-old. It was oh really kind of interesting. That's Love so it. cute. So do you, do you feel like you're making a difference in gender equality in with women's wilderness? Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, if you could just somehow quantify the transformation, transformative change that happens as far as self-confidence and body image and self-sufficiency um, and social connection with every one of the girls, women, and LGBTQ folks that come into our programs and think about how they take that outside of that domain and when they get back to their cell phones and they get back to their social media and they get back to their jobs and their families and their lives, I think it's a huge change and a huge ripple effect. And it's been 21 years of this. I mean, thousands and thousands of people have been impacted by our programs. And uh, we don't do these programs just to change outdoor culture. We do it to change the society that we live in. So You are so perfect for this podcast, right? Yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. when you found them, it wasn't, should they be on? It's how soon can we get them on? <laughs> right? Oh, thank you. And we want to get your name out there because I'd never heard of you. But what would you tell a parent who's listening to the podcast, why they should do this with, and, and how old should their daughter be to, to try this program? Yeah. I mean, I... It, First, and, and just an easy and shameless plug, womenswilderness.org, we're easy to find. And on that website, you can see our course descriptions. And, you know, there's so many summer camp and after-school offerings for 
girls, I mean, and boys, and many of them are mixed gendered and many of them are in traditional sports and, you know, through some programs in the front range specifically, girls and can get access to uh, outdoor type programming. But what's really unique about what we do is that girls are, we focus on kind of three thematic areas. One is emotional literacy, two is identity development, and three is social inclusion. And that approach, it's not just about going canoeing. It's not just about learning how to pack your pack. It's about working on these kind of this other layer of soft skills and life experience and of character development, really, and mental health, which is so important with adolescent girls now. So I would just offer up to parents that this is something that transcends the physical experience into a whole um, body, mind, and soul kind of experience. And I'd love to research, like follow the girls that have been in your program and see if any of them end up being queen bees. Because I would say there's a high, I'm hoping there's a high likelihood they wouldn't because they've learned how to work with other women or girls and how to support each other. And it's not about a scarcity model where there's not room at the top, but for one woman, it's we're pulling everyone up. We're working together. Exactly. And our instructors all are these just incredible role models, rock stars of the outdoors. They are these like rock techs with swagger. We've got folks that were on The Amazing Race, folks that were on Survivor. Wow. Um, They are these like (laughs) incredible role models. And they also are really well trained in bullying in clicks in the group dynamics Uh that happen that could really um you know either lift the girls and all of the girls in the group up and or you know allow some of those problematic social tendencies to continue and fester and in our groups i should also mention beyond um the incredible instructors and facilitators we also um try to really engage girls from all kinds of backgrounds. Um, so whereas with Outward Bound and Knowles, great programs, super expensive, thousands right. and thousands of dollars, the kind of thing that I was never able to do growing up, um, we have never said no to anyone because they couldn't pay for a course. 70% of our girls and women receive financial aid. So we're intentionally recruiting and going and doing a lot of community engagement and outreach in low socioeconomic communities. Um, And so hopefully we create groups that are very integrated in terms of socioeconomic background as Mm -hmm. well as race, as well as region. And so when girls participate in one of our programs, they're getting to experience um, not just the outdoors, and incredible positive role models, but hopefully getting a really intimate experience with girls from completely different backgrounds in a vulnerable outdoor place where the weather and the elements are hitting you, where you're trying new things for the first time. And um, we think that can be a really important uh, social cohesion mechanism. Now, what's some of your bigger or just a couple example success stories with the girls? Uh, you know, I, the one that comes to mind right now is our Queer Wilderness Project. Um, there are there is always a wait list. We always fill up all the spots for every one of the sessions. Wow. Um, and I think that's pretty indicative of us filling a need in the community that is not currently there. Um, but we have countless stories and so much data of girls when they come back from their trip. We do kind of an endline type questionnaire and experience and have done program evaluations for a long time. 
And, you know, 80 something percent of girls say that they are more confident in themselves than they were before. Um, Something like, you know, 75% of girls say that they're more willing to try new things than they were before. And so the data really speaks for itself that, you know, there is some special sauce in the experience of going outside, whether it's for, you know, three days or if it's for two weeks with a much longer, uh, more intense experience that, yeah, really hits deeply for girls and women. So what is the Queer Wilderness Project? The Queer Wilderness Project is a program that's been developed with uh, the Queer Nature Project, which is another group that's an affinity group, with the idea being that um, the outdoor experience can be positive, cathartic uh, for LGBTQ folks, basically. Okay. And so it's, um, yeah, we take we do all kinds of different activities from hikes to ancestral skills, uh, survival skills, tracking, all types of things with LGBTQ groups. That's great. And so what's the biggest challenge the organization is facing now? I'm sure this came up at the interview when you got the position. Um, Like, what are you going to do for us, you know, and to help us grow the organization or to make a bigger impact or... You know, I think I was brought on board with, as as every new executive director probably is, with a hope of growth, as Mm. you mentioned. And for us, after 21 years, we're still operating in primarily in the American West, but especially in Colorado, and scale and replication of these programs that we know are incredibly successful. Um, I think that's our greatest challenge is to figure out how to take this incredible experience and bring it to girls in Detroit and Baltimore and Sacramento, and especially in places where there are deserts. We think, oh, you know, in the U.S. there's girls sports programming everywhere, and there's girls on the run, and there's, you know, girls lead and brown girls climb, and isn't this Mm -hmm. excellent? And we did a mapping in my last position of Uh, service providers, organizations, and programs that somehow couple the physical experience and physical embodiment with um, girls and women's, you know, somehow services, but especially for adolescent girls. And what we found is that there are actually lots of programs. We interviewed something like 150 different organizations, but they're completely clustered in urban areas, more likely to be in progressive urban areas. And they're almost, uh, never replicated in different places. And so, you know, having a curriculum, having a clear impact framework and monitoring evaluation and way to go about doing your work, having funding for scale and strategic partnerships, this is what is really uncommon in this space. Mm. Um, And there are literal deserts across the U.S. Um, States and especially rural areas, Native American reservations, some urban areas where there's just nothing like this for girls. And if you look at the indicators, you know, the Girl Scouts put out an incredible report called the State of Girls Every Year. If you look at the stats, especially for immigrant girls, Latina girls, girls from low socioeconomic backgrounds, um, girls with that come from single parent families are much less likely to participate in sport, that there's a real need. And so figuring out how to take this incredible intervention and experience that we've created and make it much more accessible to adolescent girls and all adolescent girls, not just Caucasian upper middle class, yeah. ca- you know, girls that are living in mountain towns. Mm. I think that's our greatest challenge. It's almost like you want to franchise the model. Or put it in a box, you know, women's wilderness in the box. Yeah, and there's a group called Girls on the Run that actually has developed a franchise model for girls running programs. They're more in urban areas, Hmm. um, but they've done, they've been incredibly successful. I have a great respect for the work that they've done. Wow. So business development, it is treating this like a business and scaling it. 
Exactly. Exactly. Wow. So how would it look to be extremely successful at the end of five years with this program and you at the lead of it? What What would that look like? What would you love to see? I'm a big picture thinker. And when I look at outdoor culture and I look at the outdoor industry, which is different than outdoor culture, the industry is the business and the business is often seen as synonymous with culture. And I actually think those things are a bit different. When I look at outdoor culture, um, I think our work is done when the research shows that girls and women are as likely to participate, be in leadership roles, um, not just make buying decisions, but actually be profiting from the experience at the same rates as men. And when I say that, I also want to look at an intersectional approach of not just white girls and women and not just wealthy girls and women, but all girls and women are represented. So I think our job will be done. I don't know if it would be in five years. That would be fantastic if that <laughs> happened in five years. Yes. I would really retire my social impact career at that point. I know. If that it's happened. Like, I'm done. I'm done. What do I do next? I'm, too, I'm on fire. <laughs> exactly. But you know, media representation in the outdoor industry is still super sexualized and um, you know boards of outdoor companies if you look at the supply chain for the outdoor clothes that we wear you know there's still a lot of women that are being exploited in other parts of the world that fuel this industry and so I think if we were to take a gender lens and an equity lens and look very holistically at outdoor industry and culture when the playing field is equal I think our work is done and until that I until then I think we need to go beyond just providing direct services for girls and women to get on trails, which is what we do best, but into influencing others in the sector to create better, better equity and representation. Wow. What do you mean by um, media reputation is sexualized? Like all the women you see doing outdoor activities in the media are like tall, skinny, sexy blondes. Is that what you mean? White blondes. Well, there's that factor for sure. Okay. Yeah. Um, so here, I'll give you an example. Okay. When I was growing up, as I mentioned, I was a, a snowboard instructor and I uh-huh. love snowboarding and I was so wrapped up into it. And I would get these magazines, um, Trans World Snowboarder Magazine and Snowboarding Magazine. And you would see, you know, there would be maybe one picture of a pro female and then there would be all kinds of pictures of men doing very sick, amazing stuff. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing, um, getting one at one point when I was probably like 18 years old and I was just budding in my feminism. And there was <laughs> I a... I love that. Just budding in my <laughs> feminism. <laughs> and there was uh, um, two male snowboarders in an like après ski you know, in their cool clothes with their goggles on their head and their sun-kissed faces. Right, right. And they had beers in their hands and their (laughs) feet were up and their coffee table was a woman in a bikini. Oh, Oh, no. I know. But this is... Wah, wah, wah. So... Yeah, if, there's great research that's been done by a group called the Tucker Center of sport in general and media representations okay. of female in sport. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, Serena Williams being shown, mm-hmm. you know, as in a lot of ways, she's been a strong female presence in media, but with her daughter in a way that LeBron would never be seen. And so yeah. I think the outdoor industry is not immune to that. Um, often the representations that we have of female athletes are not representative of the American public in general. And women are more likely to be scantily clad or you know who gets sponsorship um for like women surfing for instance there is a direct correlation with blondness with Mm -hmm. boob size with waist size Mm -hmm. and sponsorship oh my gosh wow well and it's 
this is a tough situation because in tech, um, when you go to conferences, they they had booth babes. Have you ever heard of this? No. So, oh yes. So scantily clad where, bikini people to that get try you to, to get come, to come in, in, come into our <laughs> booth and yeah. learn about our products. Yeah. And it was, I mean, as a woman, you're walking around and people would sometimes mistake you for a booth babe, and say that to your face. And it was just a tough situation. You just, it, you just didn't really want to think badly of the women that were doing it, but you just wish. It would have never been okay for us to have treated a man like that. Yeah, right? it's it's systematic, right? It's mm-hmm. never the individual's fault. We're part of a system, you know. I, exactly. I very rarely blame it on one person. I think we've got a, a whole ecosystem, a whole structure oh. that we need to turn the dials of. And yeah, I agree. So what would your advice be to a girl or even a woman um, who says, I'm not an outdoors person. Why should I? You know, I'd say try something. And try a lot of things and take the pressure off yourself of liking it, of going back. Um, I think we need to keep the barrier to entry really low for anyone, but especially for girls and women who don't identify as, you know, I am a rock climber, I am a mountain biker. Those sporty spices are one in 10 in this town probably and probably more like one in a hundred in this country but what we know is that adolescent girls all over the world not just in the u.s when the time they're like hitting puberty and are 14 the attrition rates in all sports not just outdoor sports mm-hmm. are abysmal it's mm-hmm. you know just an absolute cliff for girls and so i think we have to find ways for it to be fun and for it to be accessible and it you know to not challenge their notions of identity and other ways that are important to them and so I would say just try it and see and hopefully get involved with an organization like Women's Wilderness <laughs> that has a really positive really intentional design so your yeah. first experience and your second one are progressive and are super friendly and designed exactly for you oh, and that's perfect and I the- always have oh please <laughs> I always have more fun camping with my friends and doing outdoorsy stuff when I'm just doing it for myself and setting my own goals and not comparing what I'm accomplishing to everybody else yeah like the last time we went camping they all went on a sunset hike and I was tired and I was like you know for me it's a win to just be sitting outside by the fire and yeah. just making a s'more I don't need to go on a hike and I didn't make myself feel guilty about it or anything I just enjoyed being there and having my own accomplishment yeah so I think that's the space women's wilderness provides very it's much not, so you're it's not like, going with a bunch of people that have been doing outdoorsy stuff for yeah years and years and years and you're worried that you have to keep up it's like this is just totally about you yeah. such a good point ronnie i mean i think it's really important to recognize like the f- using these outdoor immersion experiences as a way to touch base with your authentic self not mm-hmm. to be an imposter for someone you're not mm-hmm. you know like you might want to go climb every 14er in this state uh, 14,000 foot mountain or you ha- might have absolutely no interest in doing that whatsoever and finding a way to not inhibit that from being able to experience all of the benefits we know that nature provides in terms of your nervous system and your mental health and yeah. your physical health um because you're intimidated because you feel like you have to do it in the way that someone else does it. Yeah. I think it's really important. So my, I was lucky enough to play basketball and get a scholarship and softball um, to help pay for school. And it kind of sucked because my brother got a full ride for baseball and I had to get a basketball, softball, and academic scholarship to cover my college. <laughs> oh, my you know? gosh. Uh, and 
so when I started at AT&T, um, there was a, I got invited to the, a women's league that wasn't connected to AT&T. It was in the community. And I met um, some of my best friends in that league. And it really defined my first five years working because I felt like I had a different outlet. And it was a great networking opportunity because it was women that weren't just at your your company, yeah. right? So it got me to think outside and and to say, you need these ways to meet women, not just at your company. You get so inwardly focused when yeah. you start work. Yeah, it's interesting. I think men are brought up to understand that playing golf is part of business, yes. that it's critical to your yes. success to be able to like – you know, hit the 19th hole at the end and have a beer and go ahead and seal the deal. Yeah. Oh and women God. aren't really taught that same no. thing. And I think it's a very transgressive act, what yeah. you talk about, to yeah. just find that community through sports. And there's something that play does as well that just is takes down your guard and just brings joy in a very <laughs> sheer, simple way yeah. um, that I think is, is important for creating connections with people. I oh, agree. Yeah. I think what you're doing is fabulous. You're giving the opportunity to get women and girls especially what's the youngest the girls that are in your program third grade third grade that is fabulous Aww, so teeny tiny <laughs> i love it and so cute backpacks bigger than them it's oh amazing oh my god that's I probably so cute i love it i hope Tallulah can be one of those girls yeah she will be she will she's, she's gonna, gonna, gonna be a do badass. every sport <laughs> an outdoor badass that's we're already we're already putting that does women's wilderness have any fun events coming up that yeah, we should we can, and we should we should anything like yes. i thought you'd never ask um, <laughs> i got my pen out <laughs> Wendy um, and i like to go on little dates together so <laughs> we, excellent so october 3rd is our biggest, most fun community event of the year. Ooh. It's called Gear and Cheer. <laughs> and it's happening at REI Flagship Store in Denver. Oh, right And my house. all of our amazing corporate sponsors... Deuter and Mir and Evolve Climbing Shoes, they donate all kinds of amazing swag and gear and people come and they drink the beer and they drink the wine and they eat the food and they listen to the band and we have all these really fun outdoor-y kind of competitions and games that people can play and we have a live auction with incredible um, global outdoor experiences that you can bid on and all of the funds that we raise that night, of course, go back to the cause of girls and women's outdoor experiences and giving these uh, scholarships and financial aid to 70% of our girls. Wow. So encourage anyone to come out um, and buy a ticket. I want to say we're going to be there. What do you say, Ronnie? I say we'll be there. All Field right. trip. <laughs> we don't have October yet on our no. janky we need printout to. calendar. We, we, yeah. <laughs> we haven't gotten that far. So yes, if it's not up there, then we're free. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, you're welcome. I so appreciate the visibility for the organization, but more than that, what you're doing and the space that you're creating for these kinds of conversations that absolutely need to happen. So thank you for doing what you do. Oh, oh wow. wow. Nobody's wow. ever thanked us back that. No, wow. I like this. <laughs> Is she our new favorite? We, we you can't say that, say to that, all that every time. Yeah. <laughs> I'm usually one saying to Ronnie, you can't have favorites. You can't. Yeah, Wendy, it's like Wendy a parent. not to use the word favorite. I throw it yes. around all the time. She does. This so. is my favorite thing I've ever had every time I eat. <laughs> <laughs> well, good luck with your new job. I just know yes. you're going to do amazing. I think you're going to be fabulous at this. Thank you. Thank you for your confidence. All right. <laughs>
Thank you, Sarah, for being on the podcast and for the awesome work Women's Wilderness is doing. Yes, we are so lucky that she spent some time with us. We've had a really um, philanthropic we have. couple weeks with we Lady have. Justice and Women's Wilderness. I love that, though. I know. Right? So these high-powered corporate types. <laughs> <laughs> they're great we too. want them to everybody like anybody just, you want to be on the podcast let us know but <laughs> so it's time for our big girl spotlight yes hit me with your big girl spotlight wendy and i love this today i was lucky enough to of course be my own boss and to be <laughs> working from home or so i ended up getting to see coco golf you know her do you know who she is? She, I think so. Okay. Tennis? Yes. Okay. But you didn't watch tennis today? No. Okay. I don't, I'm not a big tennis watcher. Okay. But whenever it happens to be on, I really enjoy it. So That's I should, I should get more into it. Yeah. Well, and she's an American tennis prodigy, um, Coco Goff, and 15 years old. Oh my God. She may be younger than some of the ball kids supporting her on the court, <laughs> <laughs> but she became the youngest player to qualify for the Wimbledon in the open era. Wait, what did you say? Wilmington. <laughs> she stunned the world when she defeated first her idol, Venus Williams, wow. in the opening round, and then Magdalena Riberakova in the second round, and Polona Herchog in the third round. Woo! She lost to former number one seed, Simona Halep, today in 6-3-6-3 in the round of 16. Oh, good so, run, though. She, good run. I mean, she really, I was so impressed with her. And she is 15, but has so much um, maturity. So the Delray Beach, Florida resident, who's been touted as the next Serena Williams, told an interviewer, I'm still in shock from being <laughs> from getting there. Aw. So that was pretty cool. The next Serena Williams. Yeah. Wow. Isn't that, that amazing? That is a compliment. Oh, everybody's talking about it. All so. right. Go Coco. She, and she pocketed 220000 in prize money for a performance getting her own big girl money. Yay. Yay, Way Coco. Way to go, Getting Coco. her big girl money. Yeah, Coco. Getting Coco. her big girl money. Coco. <laughs> That's awesome. Yes. Good big girl spotlight. We love it. Oh, I love ending with those. Yes. Such a feel good. I know. So this has been a fabulous segment. Once again, I mean, these episodes seem to get better and better. <laughs> oh, thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs> Share with your friends. Give us a five-star rating. Amen, sister. Thank you for listening to this episode of Big Girl Money. We appreciate your support. If you want to follow us in other ways, we're on Instagram and Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook. And remember, we love getting email mm -hmm. about your questions and stories. I mean, it knowing that we can make an impact mm -hmm. is one of the reasons we love doing this so much. So email us at biggirlmoneypodcast at gmail.com. And check out our website, which is biggirlmoney.com. So if you like us, that makes all the big difference in the world. So what do they do, Ronnie, if they like us? Well, Wendy, let me tell you. If they <laughs> like us, they should leave a review and rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to the podcast so that others can find us. Yeah, and please share it so that other people can find us too. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye.